I had a professor here at Harvard teaching like the history of energy and unrelated one class shows up. He's like, today, you're all going to, each of you around this table are going to tell the group what your core problem is. And until that moment, I never realized what mine was. But when I was forced to say it, I was like, yeah, mine is inequality. Why is anything in between people? How can anything be found as a basis for saying that two people are not on the same level, for valuing people differently? How can we justify attributing different values to different people? And of course, there's so many reasons to want to do that in legal terms, philosophical terms, in morality, in religion, in any, in health, in anything you can want. But still at the very end, I always have the same question. Why is difference important? You know, why does difference matter? And well, at least I know now that that's my problem. <laughs> hey everyone, it's David. Welcome to Humans of Harvard College podcast. A couple of days ago, I sat through what was perhaps the most interesting and thought-provoking webinar of my entire life. Famed avant-garde artist Laurie Anderson gives the Norton Lecture at the Harvard Mahindra Humanities Center. I was able to watch a recording of her first in a series of talks over Zoom. And there was one moment that really stood out to me. She talked about how her late husband, Lou Reed, would always fade out his music as it drew to a close. And she talked about what it meant to him as a musician, why he was so adamant on including that in each of his works. She said that fading the music out, in a way, meant that the music would never end. It just leaves. You, as the listener, are a visitor who gets to witness a snapshot of an unknowable length of music. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but this podcast never ends with a goodbye. It ends, as someone could say, rather abruptly. And I do this in the spirit of Lou Reed. Our conversation doesn't end at some artificial conclusion of a podcast, the conversation continues, elsewhere, anywhere. You, as the listener, witness a snapshot of someone's story, a story that continues long after this episode finishes playing. Today, we have an amazing individual to talk to. She's a junior in Winthrop House at Harvard College, studying a special concentration, geography and identity. To start off this episode, I ask her, what is one thing that is central to her story? an irreplaceable chapter in her book of life. We start off our conversation there. Everyone, please welcome Anna Luisa Nikolai. I think that two things that are essential to like literally every parcel of my life um, is a combination and the interplay of excitement and randomness. Um, I get excited about random things and the randomness and coincidence of life brings me just like, I just get really ecstatic when um, when events happen, you know, when adventures occur. And they seem to always be out there, to always exist. Like you could just, I, earlier I was just like looking out the window because I was tired for, from staring at my screen. And I look outside and there's this man running with like, with the stroller but apparently didn't care much of the, about the stroller because he would like push it way in front of him and then run to catch up to the stroller and then push it out again. And I was like, there's a baby in there. So the child, the, the, like the dad is literally chasing his baby down the road. <laughs> it was, that was amazing. 
Jesus, what a start to the podcast. That is amazing, by the way. I, I got to ask, though, do you mind putting into context a bit more what you mean by randomness? Because mm-hmm. to me, the word that comes up is spontaneity, right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. just out of the blue, you just decide, you know what? Yes, I am going to go eat that banana that's been left on my... Okay, maybe that's not the best example, but I collect bananas. I always, whenever I get Hud's <laughs> food, I, I always ask for two bananas, even though I know for certain I won't be able to eat them immediately. So they just kind of collect and then at the peak ripeness, like the peak threshold where they're about to turn, I eat them. So (laughs) that may not have been the best example, but I'm curious, what does randomness mean to you? No, I mean, the continuity of having ripe bananas in one's room is a continuum that's worth studying and it's worth talking about. And we will put it aside for now, but I do... we'll put a pin on it. (laughs) Yes, it is... (laughs) A very grave subject, indeed. Um, so, randomness. I think there's two parts to it, right? Because, first off, I am a very spontaneous person, but only when something presents itself to me. You know, I, I, there's how can you be spontaneous if you have no um, nothing to trigger that off? You know, you can't just like, okay, I'm going to decide to be spontaneous. Like, you need some sort of goal or some sort of opportunity to be um, to do that. So. One example I have is I was walking back home from like uh, math question center uh, last year or the year before. I don't remember. And I, I hear sounds from the Smith Campus Center. And I'm like, oh, I'll walk through the Smith Campus Center. Why not? And I see there's like this huge um, Holly like festival with the entire like the communities of students from Southeast Asia, from South Asia. There's a lot of students really dressed in very colorful like dresses and dancing like Bangra and it's a huge celebration. I'm in jeans. I have my backpack. I look tired and disheveled. So I step in um, and people are dancing and people I've never met are like, come on, come dance with us. I'm like, you know, why not? So I dropped my bag somewhere and I just like joined in and I was also like a head taller than most people there, which was amazing. Um, and in jeans. So I had little, you know, by way of movement, I, I looked pretty stuck up, but it was very much very, like very fun. Had I not passed like through the Smith Campus Center, I probably wouldn't have danced Bangra that night. Um, I don't know what that added to my life in the end, you know, but I don't know, maybe it's connected somehow. I did dance in Gungru like a few months later. So maybe that's how the like cosmically interrelated points like came together to um, that is one instance of randomness, I think. I don't know if that instantiates what I mean a bit better. That makes perfect sense. And it's so funny that you mentioned this because today I actually experienced an example of anti-randomness where an opportunity was presented to myself and I didn't take it. I had a friend who was, you know what? Yeah, I had a friend who said, hey, David, I'm going to go to the yard with a couple friends and we're going to throw the pigskin around some football. And I said no, because I thought I had stuff to do. But then when the time rolled around, guess what? I didn't have stuff to do. Or more like I could have had finished that stuff mm-hmm. to go to that. Yeah. And, and that was just today. Yeah. And it's funny too, because I've been complaining to my friends back home on how like I'm never going out and I don't have that many like <laughs> hangout times. And I literally just passed up on one a couple hours ago. Yeah. So... That's rather disappointing, but you can't think about it as passed up though. Like I, I do I so feel that like sentiment and I've realized that if you play with that feeling, it starts not becoming disappointment, but it starts I don't know, becoming like 
Imagine if life was like a sponge and it has all these like cavities and porosities and it's like there's bubbles of air within it. And like if you like break an air bubble within the sponge, the structure of the sponge is not going to like coalesce into itself and become like this solid block of like work and despair and heaviness. No, the, the, the bubble is still there and you can choose to like infuse other fragrances into it. So you can have like a rose filled bubble or like a hamburger filled bubble instead. So, um, yeah, if you think in like about life in terms of bubbles, I think that could help a lot with the like changing, like yeah, changing that feeling of despair. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what my sponge looks like right now. I'm it, it I'm sure it looks desiccated beyond repair, completely dry, melodramatic. <laughs> the undertones of like coral reef destruction. Yes, yes, I've I'm completely bleached at this point. Um. <laughs> I'm curious. This is such a beautiful life perspective. And naturally I want to ask where this came from because where, yeah, where does it, where does it originate? I mean, obviously I think our life perspectives change over time. Uh, Even in the short amount of time, I would consider us young adults, but um, even through our somewhat relatively short lifespans, I'm sure we've had massive transformations in our life perspective. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious where, where this came from. I mean, this is yeah. beautiful. So I've always been this crazy kid. I, um, yeah, I was the, and to uh, since I think two years ago, I got a little cousin. But before two years ago, I used to be the only girl in my extended family. And not only that, but I was five years younger than the, like then the youngest uh like cousin brothers altogether like the whole hot pot of like all my cousins and my brother they're all guys and they're all at least five years older than I am so growing up I was rather always sort of doing my own thing but also um just playing around between all these spaces like the adult space the guy space the um, Romania is weird that's where I grew up in Romania I grew up in a kind of a strange town um, and you know, like farmland is closer to the city and it's less distinctive than in, in America where there's more space and there's highways for you to get to places where, you know, there are farmers and agriculture. So you don't necessarily see it as you just walk out of the city. Um, so always within these spaces, I was like a crazy kid and people always like got excited when I was there. So I think I started associating excitement and like that bubbly feeling of like, I don't know, being elated for life with my personality. I don't know if I was like this. Maybe it was just like, oh, there's a girl, finally a little cute thing that's all like fat and has like curly hair. Yay, we love that. So maybe people got excited around me. Therefore, I assumed that I was the excited one. And then I just kind of kept that in my life. I That's my running hypothesis for now. <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> okay, wait, hold on. This is this is like a brilliant moment of applying what I learned in class. I'm taking this psychology course right now on stigma, health, and discrimination. Last the past week, we actually read articles and, and did lecture on the self fulfilling prophecy model. Uh, but this is it's related to interpersonal stigmas and how like oh, if you have a stigma against a person, your behavior can influence their perception of themselves, which then mm-hmm reinforce that behavior which then reinforces your stereotypes and and so on but of course this can totally work in the other direction i think my tf brought up the the idea of the ugly baby slash pretty baby phenomenon where like if you look at a baby and say like oh that's a beautiful baby you naturally exhibit behaviors that 
signal to the baby that they're beautiful. And then, you know, maybe that will influence their own behaviors that lead to quote unquote beauty. That's not exactly the best example because beauty is, we've talked about this in class too, is a very subjective model. And oftentimes it exists in the power structure, but I digress. I think that's a perfect example there of other people's behaviors around you that ultimately influence your, your own perception of yourself. And then therefore your behavior. And I would like to apologize, by the way, to any psych concentrators who are listening to this in case I have absolutely butchered the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm learning. All right, please give me some (laughs) benefit of the doubt. I apologize. I'm curious if you can walk me through a little bit more about what you remember earlier in your life in Romania, because I think that's always fascinating to, to think about where you come from. I personally come from Utah. I come from the slopes the Rockies themselves and you know but I grew up in California so my origin quote-unquote is very different from my upbringing mm. and I wonder if you can say that for the same thing here too I think I I, am, I tend to emphasize the bridges between my origins in Romania and my you know growing up in Montreal um, in Canada I really emphasize the ties like the things that were continuous in my life right rather than the breakages I don't know why, but like, for instance, I still have my plush, like bunny called Tony. Um, he's very much still in my life. He was with me on the plane from, uh, from Romania to Canada. He was with me before in Romania. He's still with me today. He's with me at college. It's a great plush toy. Uh, also a puppet. Okay. Moving on. Um, my origins in Romania. I, so I left when I was seven. Um, and when I say I left, you know, my mom, my mom is a force. She is this very um, dignified lady, a very noble looking and quite scary. People are often scared when they see her. She walks very tall. She's also very beautiful, but also kind of stern. Um, but she has the kindest soul. And when um, both my parents had been professional athletes and my mother got the chance when um, the communist regime fell in Romania. She got the chance to go play in a capitalist country in Belgium. And she experienced there a way of life that was completely different from the what life was under communist uh, under the communist regime in uh, Romania. And when she came back, she always knew that she had preferred sort of that other outlook on life. And it's still hard to this day to get to understand exactly what the difference was like, because there's not a lot of like easy or like open talk about how communism was. And it wasn't like all that bad, I guess, on a day to day life. My parents being athletes, they they could get more food. They could get more rations. They could get to leave the country. They could get a lot of uh, benefits that a lot of other people did not. So they didn't experience communism in the same way at all. like the majority of people. But still my mom had like this will to change like countries and she kept that in mind. And um, she sort of like went through the, uh, the process of getting us a visa to uh, immigrate to Canada. And she did it all almost on her own. Um, my dad was roped in, but he like was kind of reluctant. We didn't even know, I was too young to understand anything. And then on her 40th birthday, my mom invited every single person she knew as like this big cabaret, like just had a huge party for her birthday. Then they all left. She said goodbye. Then after the party, she tells her family that we're going to leave for Canada in one week. That's the first time they'd heard about it. 
And then indeed, one week later, we had left and we were, you know, moving into our new home. Um, and she didn't tell any of the other people at the party. She just basically had said goodbye when she said goodbye to them for that night. And so that was it. You know, the story of the transition was sort of for even for me was sort of hidden. She never let like any of the struggles appear. So for me, it was just like this very smooth, like, oh, different place. Oh, there's snow now. Like there's a lot of snow every single year. What's about that? Um, yeah, I'll add one last thing about Romania. It's that um, I had very strong ties to the ground. And it, I don't know if that makes sense, but there was this park near my school and I had my tree. It was my own tree. Like I have a picture and um, I have a picture of me like in that standing between the roots of the tree because it was just my favorite like place to be. And I've really retained that connection to trees so far in my life. Whenever I read a book and I see even the word tree or like a mention to trees, I just like circle it all. I have like a specific symbol for them. So I identify them everywhere. Um, talk about another self-fulfilling prophecy. And yeah, I'm really not sure if I answered the question, but I guess that's a bit more about my story. It was so amazing that I forgot what the question was, to be honest. <laughs> and that's completely okay. Um <laughs> I, being connected to the ground, that is such a fascinating concept. And I'm curious if that stayed with you as well. I mean, is it yeah. like you, you don't connect with the you don't connect with the ground in Canada or here in Cambridge or oh, it's no. the same thing? Do you have your tree here perhaps? Oh, oh my God. The trees here. Um, if you walk over the side of the river that is between the river houses and the Charles, um, there's this alley of really old trees and they're all sort of patchy looking like an impressionist painting almost. And okay, this is going to sound crazy. Um, last year I had, so every, every midterm season, final season, I have a lot of trouble because I tend to be a perfectionist, like a lot of other people out there. I tend to want to work until the very last minute. And if the deadline says midnight, I will send it in at 3am because I forgot to do the bibliography and I'm like, Oh, I got to take care of that. Professors are always nice and lenient, but sure. You have to work and keep working. And I would often miss the sunsets. And I love, I love sunlight and I love the sunsets. And last year, my room didn't give onto like the sunset. Like I couldn't see the sun setting, but I could see the interior court of Winthrop House. Um, so I learned to love the shade that the tree branches make on the sort of the crimson walls, the brick walls. Um, and I knew that the different ways that the light kind of uh, pushed the shade onto those walls. That was my sunset. You know, that's what became my sunset. Seeing the branches of the trees, like throw that beautiful image on the other side of Winthrop. And I think in in that sense, like you know, trees can represent light. They can show you know the the contrast between shade and light can mean something. It doesn't have to be the big fluffy orange. Again, fluffy is a valuation term for me. I just like I put it wherever I. I like something, I call it fluffy. Sorry about, that might be confusing. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's not about being majestic and being typical, uh, you know, the big orange sunset, but it's about finding the light, you know, wherever you, whatever your environment is in. So I think that does plot down to my experience in Canada. For instance, I never understood Quebec, you know, is the only Francophone province in Canada and there's a long legacy of fighting and struggling to keep and preserve this language and the culture that comes with it. And that runs, you know, back to the 18th, 17th centuries. And 
coming in as an immigrant, I was told that I should be, you know, for the federal government and that, you know, the, the Quebecois people, they're, you know, they're just the weird Francos that wanted to separate. And what's about that? So I was like, I'm definitely, I, I would never understand why Quebec would want to separate from this great country that welcomed my family. And then I grew up there, you know, I grew up and I started listening to the songs and reading these books called uh, terroir. Terroir means like from the ground. They're literally like naturalistic novels about living in the woods at the like from the beginning of the, the colonizing period all the way through to the 1950s, but specifically like living from the land. And I read those books. I, I got into theater. I got into the language, the music, traditional like folk Quebecois music. And, you know, it took a few years and I realized I, I thought of myself as a Quebecois. And I recognized places. And I know Montreal like the back of my hand, but now I know the rest of Quebec too. I know its mountains. I know where to go. I know how to direct people. So the ground, I think the ground like speaks to people depending on how much they interact with it. You know, um, somehow I thought that was connected to the tree branches. So maybe you can tell me if you see a connection there. But yeah. I love the idea of identity, right? When it comes to <laughs> when it comes to where you live, how you live, and what you experience. You know, for the longest time, I was very rebellious against California when I moved there because I loved Utah. You know, I, as a kid, you know, you, you have these romantic views of your home, you know, uh, and as a kid, you, you're not aware of the, the struggles of life, hopefully, you know. Um, and, you know, so I obviously had a romantic view of Utah and I, and I loved Utah. And when I moved to California, I, sh- I, I was like adamant. It's like, I'm not... I'm, California isn't my home. California is not my home. Utah is my home. I'm just here temporarily, however long that may mean. Uh, but then slowly over time, as I, as I, you know, lived the, the eternal summers of California, uh, I, I began more and more to say, you know what, this, this actually maybe is my home, you know. Yeah. And funny enough, coming to Cambridge, uh, and, and maybe this speaks to how like I'm very impermanent with my home and how quickly I can, I can just decide to plop my label and, and slap yeah. it onto something else. Cause like yeah. maybe, you know, to keep onto that metaphor with trees, maybe <laughs> I am rootless a bit because I remember like the second week I moved to Cambridge for the, for the fall semester. Um, and I was like lying, lying in bed. I was like, this feels like home, you know, yo, this, feel- I could have lived here for my entire life and I couldn't have noticed. Uh, and I, I remember I called my mom actually, and I was like, "You know what? I am I'm feeling great here. Like this is my home," which may have been kind of insensitive to to say that to her. Now that I think about it, but <laughs> um, that that may not have been the <laughs> the best thing. But um, what I mean to point out is just that how closely we're attached to the ground in which we sanctify our home. I think is really important, and it, and I don't know. May, maybe yeah. maybe this rootlessness for me is is something I don't necessarily want. Um, I do kind of like consistency in life, to be honest. <laughs> I, I do like that. But um, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, when you say that you're interested in the ground, right, so to yeah. speak, how that manifests in other ways? I mean, yeah. 
it's, it seems like such a broad thing to say, right? The ground. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was a beautiful connection with my weird, weird concentration in geography. Um, you are right. And the way you talked about, you know, the ground being the place in which you sanctify your home, kind of. It's, I, I, I discovered and I was wondering about that this summer. Um, I realized I didn't know the names of the trees of the places I lived in. I cannot recognize species of trees. And that that stopped me in my tracks for a second because I was like, I pretend to feel at home in this place, which I essentially do not know. I have observed it. Um, so back in Montreal for what, 10 months. And I, I walked in, there's a park, you know, we can, there, there's a curfew now in, in, in Quebec and with the whole pandemic, you know, movements were very limited, but I would always walk in the same kind of tiny park that has different types of trees, a little playground and, and some other things. And I saw it change through the seasons. And that's the first time I remember seeing at one place change throughout almost a full entire year. And I was wonderful. Like I, I think I yearned for that. I yearned for like being rooted in a place enough to see it move with me because we are so self-centered with, with regards to time that we don't recognize the movements of nature as easily as perhaps we would have done, uh, you know, earlier. I don't know. I, I don't mean to be like historically centered on this moment and disparaging of the past, but I think not even disparaging of the past, but idealistic of the past. Um, I'm learning now to read, you know, the movements of the stars. And if you literally, if you stay outside for about three hours during a night, you would have enough just in terms of observation. Well, if you're not in a city that's too lit up as to hide a lot of the stars, but you would have enough in terms of observations to understand a lot of the different movements and logic of how the stars move. And that's mind boggling because to this day, and I'm 23 years old, to this day, I always thought that the stars were so like mystical and like how, I don't know how they move. They seem so complicated. The movements are so convoluted. How could I ever learn, you know, astronomy? But it's not, it's not. And and, and people like 3,000, 4,000 years ago would have looked at the sky and did discover how they moved simply enough. Like, and that that for me is mind boggling. The fact that we don't, you know, we don't conceive of all these temporalities evolving with us and we're evolving within them. So that detracts a bit from the point of the ground. But I think, you know, the ground has been used, first of all, as a metaphor in philosophy, um, being something, for, you know, you, you have to ground your argument in something. You need some sort of sub substratum. You need some sort of base, a foundation. Ah, good. Okay. In geography, you need it to have the structure of the earth upon which are like robed, you know, is robed all the topography and all the seas. There's a lot of metaphors around that. Um, and, and in geology, there's, again, there's the soil. There's so many things. And I guess they're all in my head. They're all metaphors. They're all different ways of looking at the ground. Um, this is what I'm trying to get at through my studies in the sort of interdisciplinary between the geosciences and the humanities is finding what the crap do we actually mean when we talk about these things like place, land, ground. Um, I, I, have a, I have a list going of like all the words that sort of mean nothing, but we understand what they mean. Like, you know, environment, um, country enclosure and park like and, and parking something field like there we we have a sense of what they mean but there's no way to actually like go on to the like somewhere and i don't know off the 
coast or like somewhere in the city and be like, yeah, 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 this is a field. Like I can tell this is a field because this is exactly how a field should look like and what it contains. Um, because those representations are variable, we essentially always decide what a type of earth, a piece of earth is. We decide, we decide a function for it. And I think that that's really powerful, really potent, like, because we inhabit these spaces in the end, you know, when it, when it comes down to the, like the everyday life, we inhabit spaces that we have defined and that we have built over or built within. And so the fact that we can refer to these spaces with words that are kind of, you know, re- like rough around the edges, words that aren't very strictly like structural, like, yes, yes, a mountain. I know exactly where the mountain starts, where the mountain ends. Even then it's not clear, you know, because there's a foothills and everything sort of melts into each other. So it's hard to say, it's hard to say what the ground is, except, you know, that thing upon which we put our feet. But, you know, the ground is the ground on my like fourth floor uh, apartment. Is that the ground or am I actually four floors above the ground? And, and if not, where is it? So I think you're asking a really good question. And I know there's something important about it. I just haven't even figured out how to ask, you know, different questions about the ground so as to like orient myself towards answers. You know, to be honest, and this is how I see questions in general, but a lot of times I ask questions with no expectation of an answer. And I think that's, I think it's perfectly fine. You know, I don't think answers are the ends, you know, I think when I taught a lesson in CSES, uh, which is this summer, uh, or not, I'm just kidding, not summer, winter program with New York City middle schoolers. Um, and I taught this lesson in podcasting and in voice. I actually, I dedicated a very significant segment in my lesson talking about questions mm. and talking about how I think too often, and maybe this is school, I, I for some reason in, in this podcast, I always bring it back to schools, but uh, I think schools tell us that answers are the things that we have to look for the most versus looking for the right question. Um, but yet again, th- that's a completely other topic. But I-, I would like to clarify a bit, because of course we've alluded to this for the past 15 minutes. Uh, what exactly is your special concentration? Because oh. you know y- you are you are part of a very select few who have decided to endure this endeavor of <laughs> creating your own field of study. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Creating your own field or just making Harvard believe that you are worthy of studying whatever you like. I'm kidding. Um, I think, so my special concentration. So again, that's a department where um, you have to apply and be supported by faculty and by other departments in the fact that you have interdisciplinary interests, which could not be fully supported by one single department, but actually require you to carve your own path at Harvard. Um, And yeah, the process to get one is very like strenuous and Mine ended up being called Geography and Identity. Now, that is not my, that was not my initial title. I had called my concentration Earth, Land, and Migration. Um, yeah. And, and the committee sort of saw my proposal. They're like, great, we're giving it to you. Super. But just change the title to this. And I was like, you know what? You're giving me what I want. I will take the title and I will go. Thank you very much. Interesting. Wait, 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 wait. I did not know this. So... To repeat, earth, land, and migration? Yeah. Do you want to know? Do you want to know why? Yeah, of course. That was going to be my exact <laughs> follow-up question. Yes. Yeah. Um, so my my 
it's a bit of an involved, more involved story. I'm going to try and tell it quickly because I think it's important. Um, my first summer after for my first year at Harvard, I got an internship with a for-profit social innovation company in, yeah, all those words in a row are just like a mouthful, um, in London. So I went to London. I got a really, really crappy apartment very far from like the center of the city, which is where I worked because I had a very kind of limited stipend. So I lived basically on my own. Well, in this Portuguese family family's apartment, but I had my own room. I had to do my own things. And, you know, um, I was really yearning to escape the city because the work I ended up doing was um, not the work I had thought I was going to do. And it was clashing with the sort of values that I thought the company was embodying. And um, and at the same time, I realized I wasn't a good fit for it, for like the startup mode uh, at that time. I didn't understand what was expected of me because there's no time. There's no one sitting you down to tell you the rules because there are no rules yet. You know, you're trying a new thing every single day. So it was kind of strenuous. And every time I'd get a chance to disappear, I would just go. I'll go visit, explore something. And one time I got four days, a weekend plus two days to do whatever I wanted. So I traveled to Scotland and it was a crazy adventure. I never stopped moving for a second. Um, And I realized on the train um, coming down from Scotland, going back to London, as the population of the train itself started changing, you know, you're, you're having... Um, less people that are traveling between cities in Scotland or like in the Highlands. You're having more urbanites, you know, more people that are evidently traveling for work or traveling for business purposes. Um, it's getting more crowded. The environment is changing. And I realized that that p- the people and the land and every single place I traveled through were very much interconnected. And that's where this idea stemmed from. I think that train ride, I wrote like, 30 pages in my notebook of just like ideas I had about this, the the things I was noticing. And out of there came my title, Earth, Land and Migration. And I thought in my head, my very convoluted way of thinking about this was um, we humans can perceive the, the globe of our planet as Earth, like the structural things that make Earth, you know, mountains, rivers, natural things. And then land land it to represent every single lens or layer that we've put over this structural earth. Land as property, land as parks, land as homes, farms, whatever things we've created. Um, And then uh, migration was for me a philosophical term, meaning how can we choose as humans whether to see a piece of the globe as either earth or land, to see it as humanly like mitigated or as like pure nature, environment how do you change how do you switch perspectives and paradigms between those two ways of seeing the earth so that was my initial thought and the committee didn't agree exactly that was too clear i guess and i believe i'm starting to love geography and identity i think it it can resonate with a lot of different people whereas earth land and migration requires all this really long explanation um i'm I'm curious what do you think about which one is your favorite title? Yo, yeah, I well, first of all, I really like that origin story of Earthland and migration. It makes me want to go to London now. It apparently has extremely because I've heard another story similar, not similar, mm-hmm. definitely not similar, but like going to London like sparked their enlightenment to their career. 
So it seems like it seems like I need to go to London to figure out <laughs> my life troubles. No, but I must admit the geography and identity is the, the simplicity of it and the duality of it makes a lot of sense because you know it's a splash of geography, it's a splash of identity, and I think the name itself begs a question, which is mm-hmm. what is identity in terms of geography? Because like for me, when I first heard of that, I thought of home, I thought mm. of Utah. Because for me, Utah, since there was like, you know, in my city had like three people who lived in it. Um, it, it. There was a lot of ground, right? There was a lot of ground that you can see. And there was a lot of space that you can see. In California, where I lived, particularly when I still lived in the Bay Area, it was cars. It, mm-hmm. car, it was cars, asphalt, tall buildings, just mm-hmm. movement, movement, movement. Um, in Utah, it was just quiet, you know, like... Mm-hmm. I think it's also the energy as well. It's different. But anyways, geography, when I heard that geography and identity, I thought about Utah and what that means to me. Like, am I a Utah? Am I a Californian? Am I a Cambridge? Cam- is there a Cambridge? Bostonian. No, that's not that's not a good one. No. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, like that, just those two words it elicits a question, which I think, and I, and I hope it does for the audience too, right? Thinking about, how a place defines who you are, um, whether you are rootful or rootless. Uh, I think I think it I think it changes per person. But whether you are just root, you could. What do you mean? Like like you yourself are the root. I think some people play that. You know, there's always been this role in in historical sources. There's always been the figure of the go between. Like um, Sacagawea, for instance, was a go between figure between. Yeah, so you know what I mean. Um, and it's kind of hard to define. Sorry, you're gonna you say something. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, that's that's amazing. I never thought about that in that way, right? Um, the go between. But see, she was not. She was designated that mm-hmm. as as the go between by someone else, right? A, 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 an externally imposed identity. Yeah. But I'm wondering if if is there an example of like a self imposed go between, right? Like. I am <laughs> the connection between two worlds. That doesn't seem to be the case. I've been reading these weird pre-Old Testament, but integrated in the bibliographic, a bit, bib, my God, the biblical tradition texts, one called One Enoch, the other called the Book of Jubilees. And, you know, you have Enoch, this weird dude, prophet. He's, he's just there chilling. And, you know, he basically has to become the scribe of the history of all humanity. He is appointed because he's kind of wise and nice and we like him. He is appointed by by God's angels to take notes essentially about all of human history from its like origins to forevermore. Oh, so he's easy. just there sitting like in Eden, uh, you know, even through the flood. The flood didn't actually like fill up to him. He was just there still writing and he still is writing to this day. We don't know on what. I'm assuming he's now upgraded to like a tablet or something to make it easier. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I, I think the figure of the go-between, in my opinion, cannot be unimposed. Why would you choose to live simultaneously in two spaces? That's like the liminal experience, like, oh my, the climax of the liminal experience. Like, do you ever get to come back if you're always in between? Although it does remind me, though, and maybe this could be relatable to you, too, 
given um, you know your background with so many homes. I, I'm the first person in my family in the long, long lineage of Chen's or whatever to be born on U.S. soil. Uh, my, my, I have an older brother, but he was born in China. My parents were both born in China. My little brother was born in the U.S., but he was three years too late. I got here first, and I was born with a U.S. passport, U.S. birth certificate, all that jazz, which I remember my dad actually tells me a story how, like, angry he got when the doctor when when um when the doctor handed him my birth certificate that said the u.s um and therefore declared my citizenship because my dad spent like 12 years in the u.s before he could get naturalized and he was like gosh dang it you're born and just gives you the paper and and he had to spend 12 years but (laughs) anyways um you know whenever i visit back home in china you know i'm by um americanized i have an americanized chinese accent you know the other way around mm. uh and in many ways i'm the i'm the one who's grown up most in Amer- assimilated most in american culture um and therefore i'm kind of like a liaison you know i'm the american democrat um not democrat <laughs> american <laughs> jesus not american diplomat to my extended family back home in china so in many ways i live occasionally every few years in between worlds of the u.s and china and and, and maybe it's not best to bring in geopolitics here but um yeah i guess you can call china and the u.s their own worlds and when i travel between them as as with so to speak a foot in each door yeah um maybe that shows up but i'm you know technically you have three feet in three doors and i'm kidding i have lots of feet all over the place yes many many feet yes <laughs> but does the okay does the experience of having these um you know, having your life in between these two places, is that enriching for you? Is that enriching for your communities? That's also something I wonder. Are you detracting from um, your Chinese communities when you go back to China because you ha- you have this strange, like, speck of Americanism on your shoulder and that's always there with you? Um, or is that something that becomes enriching in your new environment, you know? And when you, when you come back, is that the same in America? Damn, I'm in the hot seat now. I'm, I'm the one being asked questions. This is so different. I love, I love this. By the way, like the ideal situation for these podcasts is like we we both ask questions and oh, oh, it's amazing. But it's funny that you ask that that you bring up the point of a speck of Americanism because I'm I was very tan. Actually, moving to Cambridge lightened my tone a lot because it was just not. I didn't have that much sun exposure. But in California, I would swim every day and. I was a I was a very baked person, um, uh, skin tone wise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I would go back to China, and I was like fifty shades darker than everyone, and and so I had this physical representation of mm. outsidership, right? Mm. And in fact, like my parents would always bring it up, like look at look at you, you don't put on sunscreen, and now look at you, you stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, everyone's pale, and then you're here like yeah anyways but i have such a similar experience to that um i my colloquially i used to be known as either the little sister in romania like every our extended family and their friends all called me little sister because i was like everyone's little sister but also they called me it's not very nice but um the crow i would get very very tan that's just by way of how my skin works i get very tan in the summer um, but my mom is very like pale, and also a lot of Romanians are not that like dark skinned. Um, and there's a kind of a long-standing hate relationship with um, 
Romas and gypsies in Romania. And often they do have a significant like change in like um, the tone of their skin. And being called a crow always as a joke, but with the sort of xenophobic undertones and the classist undertones of that had always struck me. Like I was like, how dad, like you're a kid and you're everyone like loves this kid, but they also call her a crow because she's dark. Um, which made which to this day I'm not sure how I feel about and I'm I'm still wondering at that, you know, but I very much feel the story about um sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah, it was a very, very sore thumb. But I'm trying to come up with an answer about whether or not it was beneficial I, I forgot exactly your wording but like was enriching, it yeah, enriching for the, for the community you know I would I would say that I think to my extended family who I visited in many ways it was because they got to view uh you know a side of life because you know I'm still family right but yet so different mm-hmm. and I think I think they enjoyed that because you know whenever I come home they would just talk about like yeah how school and how, but okay, not in like the classic Thanksgiving dinner type questions of how school, but like how is American school like actually, yeah. right? Because there's Chinese education, American education, very different. But mm-hmm. and yeah, they would like tell me like yeah, like do you guys wear jeans and stuff like Levi's? Apparently Levi's is like a really big deal in China, <laughs> and I would I had Levi's and you know I was like a, a, a social king with Levi's. No, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, they, I just remember that we had a conversation about Levi jeans. And how like cool it was, but uh, as for enriching for myself is where I don't think I can answer that with a clear, clear view because I don't really know. I, cause everything has to be retrospective, right? Uh, and and as of now, I, I can't think of a situation <laughs> where I benefited explicitly beyond. I mean, beyond just like talking to my family and and speaking. But I don't know if that's because of my in betweenness. I certainly felt bad, you know, when people pointed out that like I looked very, very different. In fact, I still remember we had we had a photo shoot for our entire family because like we would only visit every few years. We're like, yeah, let's take a photo together. They literally photoshopped me to make me, and I I I think I have this photo like on on my phone somewhere. But like my original skin was like pretty dark, and then when they photoshopped me, I was like pale, and my skin was like airbrushed all over. I I looked really fake but still they they achieved what they wanted which was skin tone assimilation they got me and and i i was i was like the rest of them and i guess now in retrospect that that did feel rather uncomfortable because that was one aspect that it was so unacceptable that they had to change it for the permanence of the photo you know like they didn't want that and it it was even more obvious because i was because i was i'm also kind of like tall in my family so I was like in the middle with my older brother, who was also pretty tall. So it was literally like pale, 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 tan, pale, 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 pale. So I was like, I was literally in the middle there. So yeah, it made sense for them to maybe want to smooth out the spectrum of tones there, but <laughs> smooth out yeah. difference and var- yeah. yeah, you know, we I think what is what is striking for me right now is that such differences can prove life-changing for people you know the 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 color of your skin can mean the literal difference between life and death torture and pleasure i'm not even sure how to best dichotomize this but it there's such a huge spectrum in the lived experience according to these differences in our humanities and yet 
within like the larger scale of things, if I am not to think from like a human perspective, say us humans, we all like exist within a very small window of variability. We're all pretty much the same, but kind of different, but still the same. Um, and, and yet that difference, however small it is on like a global scale can mean a, such a a huge difference for like the enjoyment of your life and the possibilities that you're awarded that you know that difference that's like my core problem in the world I had a professor here at Harvard teaching like the history of energy unrelated one class shows up he's like today you're all gonna each of you around this table are gonna tell the group what your core problem is Everyone, you know, you're going to want to say something fancy, but don't say whatever your intrinsic like passion and like fire to fight for something. What is that? Point that out. And until that moment, I never realized what mine was. But when I was forced to say it, I was like, yeah, mine is inequality. Why are why is every why is anything in between people? fundamental how can anything be found as a basis for saying that two people are not on the same level for valuing people differently how can we justify attributing different values to different people and of course there's so many reasons to want to do that in legal terms philosophical terms in morality in religion in any in health and anything you can want but still at the very end, I always have the same question. Why is difference important? You know, why does difference matter? Um, and well, at least I know now that that's my problem. <laughs> and to just pong it back to you, my problem, yeah. and I'm, I'm, and I'm going to follow this, this up with a question too, because, you know, these problems don't generate randomly out of our minds. It's not like you wake up one day, it's like, wait a second, the world is equal. And you're like, that's the problem. Got it. There you go. You know, it comes from a long, long line of experiences that build up to this realization. And for me, I think, and this is rather uh, convenient that we're on a podcast right now, but my problem is that it's also kind of, I guess, in the themes of inequality, but the amount of times someone's voice is heard in life, I think is proportional to how misunderstood they are. You know, I, I actually recently was reached out to a, to a person who wanted to document um, the stories of the homeless people here at Harvard Square in the hopes of um, creating a GoFundMe for them uh, to, to get them resources and all that. And, you know, I realized I've never heard any of them, mm-hmm. frankly, because I never engaged in a conversation with them. And without hearing them, without hearing their stories... How could I possibly attempt to say that I understand them? Mm-hmm. And there are same thing with students too, right? In in high school, I I was able to through this podcast that me and my friend did, we were able to hear the stories of faces that we would pass by in hallways every single day, assuming like they're they're part of the backdrop. And uh, and the, the worst thing that I can see happen here at Harvard for me is to do the same thing is to uh, just, mm-hmm. this, you know, obviously it's during quarantine, so I can't really say that. But in, in, in a normal year, walking by and seeing all these faces and just assuming that they're part of the environment. But in reality, they each represent a story and a voice along with that story. Mm-hmm. And, and only through hearing that yeah. can I understand them. Um, so that's my problem in this world. Voices aren't heard, you know, and yeah, you can't. And, and here's the thing with politicians, too. If I, if I may just quickly rant. 
how could you possibly say you understand your constituents if you haven't heard them before, right? Like that's that's that, that, that does make sense to me. No, you can't you can't read a book about them, right? As much as I love anthropology, right? Written works can only do so much. Written language, as far as I know, was invented way later than spoken language, right? This is this fundamental quantum of human experience. Anyways, I'm I'm droning on, but I love that the fundamental quantum. I, if I may, um, follow up on that before you ask me yet another wonderful oh boy. question. Okay. No, no, I. You mentioned no, no, no. the um, the unsheltered people around Harvard Square, and you know, everyone. We all know that there's quite a population here. We may recognize some faces. My um. I, I've spoken quite a lot with a man called Alistair. He basically chills by JP Licks most of the time by, or by the Harvard bookstore. Um, he's very nice from Ireland initially. I bas- He now like knows me. Like It's been a while. We've spoken since my freshman fall. And uh, you know he's been dreaming to go to California and out of the cold for two years now. It still hasn't happened. And um, last time I met him, I was in a rush because I had class. So we only spoke for like 10 minutes and he actually like fully wrote a book and the Harvard bookstore is selling his book. And, and he just told me, Hey, if you want to read it, here's the title, but please don't post it on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Please don't do that. I, I don't, I don't want that to happen. I just want the people I know to read this book. And, you know, the Harvard bookstore, they're nice. They helped me, like, set up with a publisher and things like that. And I, I'm i not sure if this counts as, like, some sort of social media outreach, but I, I do want to share the title of his book because I think his stories have been amazing. Um, yeah, it's it says a lot about him. It's called Nomadic in America. And... Legitimately, this man has lived so many adventures and he would tell me about how difficult it's been um, during COVID for unsheltered people around Harvard Square because a lot of the shelters have indeed closed. And he said, this is the first time we've been outside for a year. He said, you know, March, 22nd of March, that's when the shelters closed last year. That will make one year of living entirely outdoors. We don't, we don't live outdoors anymore, right? We all go in and out of places. We mostly spend our times in our rooms. We become, even our temperatures, like we become used to this warm, cozy, like bubble of whatever. You know, we have our, our Netflix to soothe us and a lot of um, warm food, tea. Like I've never thought about living outside much less than for a year. And the fact, yeah, I don't know, that was just... I wanted to share that because um, that's a, a, an experience like that I can never conceive of. This maybe just illustrates why I need stories in my life is to expand my perspective. And and now I really want, I definitely need to meet Alistair, right? Is his name? Alistair, yeah. Alistair. Right. He, right. he would talk about other, um, there is this lady I'm rather, I don't ever know if I should talk to her or not. I don't know if she likes being talked to or not and and i need to respect like her will for you know conversing with another human being and he just says oh yeah that's kathy she's crazy i'm like whoa wait a second he's like no 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 i think she legitimately is but she's also a nice lady and i laughed so hard i was like not expecting any of what he said 
And that that just goes to say that, like, you know, interacting with humans at Harvard is so interesting because we all have diff- way different ways of approaching life um, from the very, like, determinate, like, sort of functionalist approach to um, very, like, leisure. I don't even, I don't want to draw, like, stereotypes right now because, like, you know, you've experienced, we all do these, like, different ways of inhabiting the space, but we seem to not include all people that live here but don't do school like we do you know there's um huds staff there's the janitorial staff in the houses um there's the people who take out our recycling like and our trash every week that we we don't interact with there's these homeless people they there used to be i covered this a story for the independent which is a news publication here at harvard um, where the out-of-town news kiosk used to be. And like smack dab in the middle of Harvard Square used to be this news kiosk. It got discontinued like a year and a half ago, got bought by this um, like new startup called uh, Culture House that tried to make, make the space into some sort of third space between the home and the workplace, make it a non-consumerist interaction space where you could go and chillax and there's art like put on the walls, but you know, don't need to buy coffee or like do anything consumerist, you know? And what happened to it is that the homeless youth of Harvard Square literally just inhabited it, you know? People would rarely go inside because they'd go inside and see like, half the people in it would be homeless um, youth. And then they did just walk out and leave. So I went in one day and I was supposed to cover this as like a sort of a human interest story for the independent. I go, you know, there's this weird like hippie looking dude with a red beanie on his Mac. And he's like looking over the space and except for him, it's all unsheltered people. They're all like homeless youth. And I just go in. He, I'm like, I ask him, oh, can I sit? He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. He seems so eager to see me, whatever, okay. I sit in a corner, start fake reading my book. And I felt like such a stranger. And I felt like such an outsider because there were lives being crafted there. The conversations of the everyday life of people I don't live alongside with. And they're... At that day when I was there, there just so happened to be a fight between two of the, the, the two people there. And I had never seen a punch thrown in the face of somebody else in my entire life. That was the first time. And I got really scared. And it was just such a an out like otherworldly experience. And it's right in front of CVS. And you know what? We basically just walk by that space every single day. Now it's been closed because of COVID. Um, it's probably changed hands. I don't know who owns it anymore, but it used to just be this black hole in the middle of Harvard Square. Everyone would just walk around it, not ever knowing what's happening inside that booth. So I think that's crazy that we cannot know our space and yet inhabit it like so closely. Thanks for listening to another episode of Humans of Harvard College podcast. I'm your host, David Chen. This podcast was produced by Mira Becker and Chelsea Guo, graphic design by Mei Yan, and music by Alex Yoon. Special thanks to Anna for being a great guest and the Humans of Harvard College organization. Go follow them on Instagram, at Harvard Humans. And of course, if you want to see more of Anna's work, they're linked in the podcast description. We'll see you next time.